Well, thank you very much. It's great to uh, see you all here this morning. So I'd like to begin by reading a text, which I believe is your tradition. Uh, do you stand when you read scriptural texts, or are you more comfortable sitting down? That was not a rhetorical question. You want to stand up? Good. Let's stand up and do that, shall we? Now, if you want to open your Bible, it's John chapter 20, verse 19, but we might be using a different translation. So um, this is, I think, the New Revised Standard, so it's kosher. It's not the Rick Watts version. So here we go. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples rejoiced. It's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? <laughs> when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. And all of God's people said, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, thank you. Excellent. <laughs> we all have different ways of responding. Fancy that, a Pentecostal who tries to do liturgy. Wonders will never cease. Okay. <laughs> well, a um, couple of things to notice coming out of this text. Look at these words here. Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, Lord, God, Messiah, Son. Is what gives rise to what we call the Trinity. Now, um, when they first asked me to do this, I just thought, are you guys crazy? Do you have any idea what's involved in all of this? Uh, there's just a massive amount, even overwhelming amount of material on the subject of the Trinity. And frankly, I don't think anyone understands it. Uh, there are some people who know something about the measurement problem in physics. Do you know about that? You can tell where particles are, but not how fast they're going, or how fast they're going, and not where they are, that kind of thing. No? Okay. Well, there's a very famous scientist who says, anyone who says they understand the measurement problem don't actually know what they're talking about. And I think that's probably appropriate to the Trinity. 
If you can understand the Trinity, well done you, because no one else ever has. Uh, You're probably thinking, oh my goodness, um, I should go now. Well, I don't know. (laughs) So what I hope to be doing with us over the next five days is, first of all, to go through an introduction. And uh, in this introduction, we're going going to do a bit of heavy lifting, I think. But we're going to ask, first of all, what is the Trinity? Why does the Trinity matter? And where in the world did the idea first come from? So that's the first section of this morning. And then we're going to talk about how we go about understanding the Trinity. People have spent a lot of time trying to work out what the Trinity looks like. And there are some helpful things, but also, I think, some fairly serious pitfalls that we often fall into. That's the nature of pitfalls. You fall into pits, right? So uh, that can be a danger for us. So... I think that's going to be worthwhile doing. It'll set, I think, a solid foundation for what we're doing in the coming days. Then, given, of course, that this is a group of people who love to spend their time in Scripture, the next four days is mostly going to be spent in the Scriptures in some detail. And we're going to start then on Tuesday with Israel's experience of God. Now, it's really important to get this right because you sometimes forget it, but Jesus was actually Jewish. He wasn't Canadian. And he wasn't Australian, you can show your pleasure. Uh, he certainly wasn't British or whatever, you can, you know, all the, the responses you want to make. But it is interesting, the more you think about how the early church and later the churches thought about God, how often we've marginalized the fact that Jesus is Jewish, which is very strange. And what I think it does is it sets us up for trouble because as a Jew, Jesus' worldview came from Israel's scriptures. Now, a little note here, Uh, you'll notice I haven't used the word Old Testament, and it's not because I'm trying to be precious, but I think there's a problem with that language, and one of the major problems is, where does Jesus ever call the Scriptures of Israel the Old Testament? And we're meant to be his followers, aren't we? Followers of Jesus? But we know better than he does. He didn't know it was the Old Testament, but we do. Are you kidding me? None of the people who knew Jesus best, like Paul or Mark or Matthew or Mark through Peter, of course, John, none of them ever call it the Old Testament. And the reason why I think that 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 terminology becomes a problem, because if it's old, we don't pay attention to it. And we often think, well, it's all passe, you know, we've moved on from that, we don't really need to take it seriously. But I want to suggest to you, actually, that Jesus really did. And even when you read Paul in Galatians, and he's arguing for the fact that the Torah was never meant to be permanent, how does he do it? By appealing to Torah. So the scriptures still carry enormous authority. And I suspect actually that one of the reasons, if I can just point to this, that some of the early church fathers got into real trouble over the son and begotten language is because they weren't paying enough attention to Israel's scriptures. So that's where we're going to begin. We're going to go back on Tuesday and take a look at the God of Israel scriptures, and particularly what we learn about Elohim. Right? So that's the God you meet in Genesis 1, and what he does, and the kinds of things he's interested in. And then we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the Exodus, because that's where you get to meet Yahweh. Now, why would that matter? Well, some of you would know that the Greek translation of Yahweh is Kyrios, and in the English Bible, that is Lord. And that's the name that's most commonly used of Jesus. You do get Jesus Christ, but even more commonly, Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems to me it's critical to get a handle on who the Lord is, who Yahweh is. We're going to do that on Tuesday. 
Uh, some wonderful moments are there, I think, at least for me, uh, transformative even. Then uh, that's going to take us to our third day, and I've got these in the wrong order, actually, being influenced by the uh, actual order of the creed, if you like. We're going to talk not about Jesus, but the Spirit. And that might be a bit surprising, except if you work with Israel scriptures, you meet the Spirit before you meet Jesus, right? Now, I want to take that seriously. We're all Bible-believing people, aren't we? Aren't we? Hello? Yes? Okay, good. We are. So if we, we, if we really do believe them, why not take them seriously? And I'm going to try and do that. I'm going to spend some time looking at the Spirit. And in fact, the Spirit occurs, I would argue, right at the beginning of creation. It's almost as if there's no way of really knowing who God is apart from the Spirit, which warms the cockles of every Pentecostal's heart. <laughs> Even if we don't tend to look terribly much like that Spirit on occasion, or a lot, as the case might be. Then, after that, we're going to talk about Jesus. Well, of course... Uh, Jesus is where things really get interesting, or come unglued, or both. And uh, the two critical concerns here, there's no question but that Jesus is human. Everyone understands that in the first century, it's no problem. But then he starts doing stuff that only God can do. And that's where things get really, really interesting, and I would argue that's what gives rise to this whole interesting discussion about the Trinity. Because you get Jesus doing stuff that only God does and yet he talks to God as father and the father addresses him as son. Right? And we'll focus on that just a little bit in the uh, upcoming section, the introduction. Then of course, uh, day five, I want to talk about what this means in our lives. I'm going to look at that through the lens of the comforter in John. And uh, given that we do have this tradition of actually bedding, embedding ourselves in some texts, uh, Friday will be the day. We're going to take a look at John 13 through 14. Uh, Peter's statement, you know, I'll go die with you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. You'll betray me. Then he goes on to say, let not your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place. You're going to talk about what that means in terms of the Trinity and the Christian life to kind of really bring that uh, down into our level of existence, if you like. So I hope that's okay. Uh, it has to be because I'm the one with the clicker. So there you go. <laughs> All right, so this morning are two big questions. What, why, and where does it come from? And then I want to talk about how people have tried to understand the Trinity. So the first thing is, in terms of the Trinity, well, I think this is kind of a generally accepted, brief, without too many caveats, definition. One God in three persons. Join me now, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, you can already see this sounds a little odd. How can you have one and three? Okay? And this has occupied some of the greatest minds in the history of the church. In fact, Augustine here, and uh, you don't know it, but this is actually a selfie. They did have iPhones back then, at least just one. I think Doctor Who dropped it in his TARDIS visit, and Augustine found it and took this shot. And, uh, anyway, here's what he has to say. Whoever denies the Trinity is in danger of losing their salvation. And whoever tries to understand it is in danger of losing their mind. Are you sure you want to be here this week? <laughs> Would you like to risk your salvation or your mind or both? <laughs> well, um, then there's also John Milton, one of my favorite poets. Oh, blessed, glorious trinity, bones to philosophy, but milk to faith. He's not so quite famously remembered for that, but he's saying the same thing, right? The trinity is basic milk to Christian trust, but if you come at it like a philosopher, it's like gnawing old bones. 
at least on one reading. All right. So they're capturing, I think, the two elements that are involved in all of this. First of all, that it's essential. And I'm going to argue that to put my cards on the table. Uh, I will argue I think it's actually impossible to be a follower of Jesus and not believe in the Trinity. But I'll argue for that in just a moment. At the same time, I do think it's impossible to understand in spite of our best efforts. So those are the two things we're looking at for the rest of our time. And we've got about 30 minutes. So seatbelts on and we're going to fly through this a bit. I think it's being recorded, so if you don't get it all now, you can get some later on if you want to. And It's pretty cheap. I think it's only $500 to download, isn't it? Is that right? We've agreed? Yeah, thank you. Good. And that's the special. It goes up to $1,000 tomorrow. It's okay. <laughs> all right. Well, essential. Is it really essential to Christian belief? Doesn't Augustine's claim sound just a little like an overstatement? And in fact, for some people, they do think uh, he's actually wrong. They would argue that all you need to do is simply trust Jesus. That's all that matters. That the doctrine of the Trinity is some kind of esoteric speculation, which by, by that they usually mean unhelpful, right? even ungodly. One wag once described the Trinity as a kind of cosmic numerology, not that different from occult sciences or astrology. For some people, uh, it becomes a bit of a, a one-eyed and even a wild-eyed obsession as, at that. Uh, you remember many years ago when you had folks that were really caught up in the last days? Is that kind of a big thing these days or not? When I was growing up, the late great planet Earth, anybody remember that? Right? And you'd meet people and they had this strange look in their eyes. Remember that? And you, you, just, you just suddenly remembered, oh, look, I've got an appointment. I have to go. Sorry. Okay. Uh, you do, do meet some people when you say the word Trinity, this transformation happens and a kind of a weirdness comes over them. And uh, they would call it the spirit. The rest of us are not quite so sure. But um, they're like, you know, a person with, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And you'll meet some people like this, so kind of this Trinitarian monofocal thing, and everything becomes a Trinity. And, well, you know, the Trinity is great, but um, I'm not entirely sure that reading everything in the light of the Trinity is faithful to the biblical witness. Now, um, as we go through the next few days, hopefully you might see there's some justification for my hesitation about this second reason for avoiding the trinity is how much trouble it causes and it's true you have to admit that those early debates about the trinity running up through the second third fourth fifth century actually created some of the deepest and the longest lasting schisms the church has ever seen and you have to admit that and some of those schisms are still not resolved so isn't that interesting? How can something that's so essential to being Christian, how can that have created so much division? Well, my guess is that's not God's fault. I suspect it's got something to do with the way we think we can understand it. That's why I'm going to talk about understanding a bit later on. I don't think the division comes because of the truth of this doctrine. I think it comes because some of us think we know a lot more about it than we actually do. And there's something about human beings like that, isn't there? You know, Melchiz um, who's heard about Melchizedek? Right? The guy gets, what, three references in the, in the Bible? And people can write 800-page books on Melchizedek. Right? Now, that tells you where the problem comes from. There's this thing about human beings that just love to go into places where God has not spoken. And as I constantly remind my students, if God has not spoken, zip the lip. Don't presume to speak for him if he has not actually told you what to say. Uh, you can tell I have some strong feelings about this. Right? But 
Even if it is difficult, that doesn't mean it's not true. Whoever said that all important things have to be simple and easy? Anyone married here? <laughs> Good, right? Who's had children? Right, that, I think, ought to completely divest you of the nonsense that true things or important things have to be simple. That's just not the way that it is. So why should we expect that of the Trinity? Now, for other people who know a bit more about the historical background, uh, their stalking horse is going to be Hellenistic speculation. Now, I'm using the word Hellenistic. You might know that word, some of you. But the ancient Greeks didn't call themselves Greeks. They called themselves Hellenes. And so when we talk about Hellenistic, we're talking about that way of thinking that comes from the ancient Greek world. And we use that word not just because it sounds wonderful, enlightened, and you know that's what you expect professors to do, but because it's a helpful distinction between modern Greek thinking and particularly what was going on in the ancient world. And that's really what I'm after, what was going on in the ancient world, not so much now. And so these people who are saying, well, really, this only emerges when the early Christians become more Hellenistic than Jewish. They will rightly note that the word Trinity doesn't occur anywhere in the New Testament. Also, rightly, they will note that the doctrine is nowhere explicitly or unequivocally stated in the Scriptures. And again, rightly, getting a bit boring, isn't it? That nowhere in the New Testament... Do we see Jesus or any of those who knew him best ever getting worked up about the Trinity, let alone trying to explain it? Thought about that? Bible-believing people? Jesus never gets fussed about this. Neither does Paul. Well, see, they make some extraordinary statements and they never try to explain it. Hmm... That's worth pondering, right? A word like naughty starts floating around up here. It's, uh, anyway, hmm. Of course, their point is, if this is so important, why is there so little explicit about it in the Scriptures? And finally, as Immanuel Kant, some of you might know him, famous philosopher once said, does it really make any difference if one believes in one, three, or even ten persons in the Godhead. That strikes me as a rather odd comment. I should have thought it would make a lot of difference if you're married to one or ten spouses. Uh, you know, and of course, it's not about the number, it's about the kind of spouse you're married to. So, but maybe that's what happens with philosophers. They get so caught up in their ideas, they lose a bit of contact with the real world. <laughs> maybe um, theologians too. <laughs> Correct me if I need it. Well... You can see then, given some of these concerns, how can belief in the Trinity actually be a matter of salvation? Now, it's true, and we confess and admit that what might be called a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity doesn't really appear until the great church councils of Nicaea, around about 325 AD, and Constantinople in 381. And it's also true that those councils mostly comprised Hellenistic Christians. Now, why do I keep saying that? Well, that's going to come up a bit later on, but just to flag this, people in the Greek world had this conviction that if something changed, it couldn't be true. And you probably get that, right? Two plus two must always equal four. If not, it's not true. That sounds okay, but have you looked in the mirror lately? 
Right? What's the problem with our world? Everything changes. What does that tell you? You won't find the truth from looking at the world around you. That's why when the Greeks are trying to work out what's true, they don't do history. Oh, yes, they do do history, but that's not where they get their truth from. They do philosophy because in philosophy you have wonderful abstract ideas that never change. That's why they're great at geometry. And I think that's why very early on, early Christians are happy to use the triangle as a way of talking about who God is. That kind of fits with their culture. But that's not really a Jewish way of doing things. They don't think about reality like that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But it is true that most of the people who are doing this thinking about how God works have grown up in a culture that is implicitly suspicious of history because history changes and you want the eternal unchanging truth. You can see the impact of that even in the way we do theology. Much of our theology is abstract and disembodied. And where do we get that from? Because we all believe in the incarnation. Why is it so much of our theology is, in fact, the opposite of the incarnation? Disincarnate, eternal, disembodied. Did you get that from reading scripture? Where did that come from? Well, I think I know. It came from another culture that had a different way of coming to the truth. Right? Now, we'll come back to that when we go on to talk about understanding in just a moment. The point is, of course, being Hellenists, which is fine. God loves them too, right? Loves Aussies, he must love them, my goodness. They're going to use language, they're going to use concepts that come out of their world. They're going to use the language that's available to them, which may be more or less helpful. And it's also true that those councils were not always pictures of the Spirit's grace and harmonious, self-effacing peace. If you've actually read some of the history, uh, plagued by imperial, political, and personal rivalries. Right? Now, you don't often hear about that. You know, the councils are often lionized and romanticized in all kinds of ways. But actually, there are people just like us. And if we look at us, we have our own little rivalry issues. We've kind of got ego issues and all those kinds of things. That's the environment in which many of these creeds would... Which doesn't mean the creeds are wrong, by the way. It's just being honest about the environment out of which they came. Now, having said all of that... Being able to affirm some of these concerns, nevertheless, I think Augustine is absolutely correct that if you deny the Trinity, your salvation truly is at stake. And why do I say that? Not because of the councils, but because of this guy, Jesus. So we have to be really clear about this. The problem of the Trinity emerges from the Jesus in whom I trust we all believe. Right? Um, forgive me, but if you want to blame someone, this is the guy. Take it up with him. Right? Oops, sorry about that. So the critical point to get here is the post-apostolic church did not invent the Trinity. I was teaching in China a number of years ago. I had a bunch of Chinese students who were doing history. And I was talking about the high view of Jesus in the Gospels. And they were really agitated because they'd been taught that the notion that Jesus was God only came from the later Greek church. And it was stunning for them to see, actually, no, it's right there in the Gospels very, very early on. Came up and they were all very agitated about this. We had a wonderful time. And of course, it's not just Jesus. It's those like Peter, John, and Paul who knew him best who first preached the gospel. Right? So have a look at this text, for example, from Paul. Yet for us, there is one God 
the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. That's creation language, right? And one Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice not Son. One Lord, Jesus Christ. And then through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, can you see how astonishing this is? This is a first century Jew and one of their major commitments is you keep creator and creation separate. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. That's their fundamental starting point. And here, what, in the mid-50s, so maybe, I don't know, 25 years after Jesus died, here's this guy, Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, forefront of his generation, zealous for the God of Israel, persecuting Christians, and he now just says this without even a kind of a, a beg your pardon, just off he goes and says it. And he's not arguing for this, he's talking about food. I mean, this just drops in the middle of discussion about what you can eat or you can't eat. Have you thought about that? That's just blindingly amazing that within 20 or so years, you can get a guy like this who puts Jesus right up in the Jewish Shema. And there's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, right? Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, Yahweh is one. That's what defines Israel. And now here's Paul talking to Corinthians, right? a Roman colony, about what food they can eat. And he just drops this in as though this is just normal and expected of everybody. Now just think about that. If you're a historian of ideas, explain to me how you can get from a Jewish monotheism to this so quickly. That's just mind-boggling. And forget being Christian or religious or anything like that. Just be an historian of ideas and explain to me how this happens. Something must have gone on, folks, to cause this kind of seismic shift in the thinking of this person, Paul. Okay. So, to put it back in some Jewish language, for them there are many gods and many lords, but for us there is one Elohim, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Yahweh, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, that text is what's driving tomorrow's discussion. We're going to talk about Elohim and what we learn about him. And then we're going to talk about Yahweh, which is a title that's most given to Jesus in the New Testament. We want to unpack some of that. Quite stunning, actually. Well, how do we explain Paul doing this? Well, I suggest it begins again with Jesus. Now, that's what's great about that John passage that we began with. I know poor old Thomas gets a lot of stick, right, doubting Thomas. Uh, for me, he's the hero. <laughs> but then I'm Odd. You probably know that. That's my middle name, Rick Odd Watts, okay? But, you know, what Thomas offers is the first, what Thomas offers is the first truly Christian confession in the New Testament. He's the first one to get it right. And the way he comes at this is exactly the way God told Israel to come to their belief in him. We're going to come to that when we talk about understanding in the next section. Right? Thomas wants to see and he wants to touch and he wants to handle. That's how Israel learns about Yahweh. They do not do speculation. So when Thomas says, I need to do this, he's doing exactly what God told Israel to do with the Exodus. You've seen, you've heard, you've witnessed this. That's what Thomas is asking for. 
And when Jesus finally is there before him, then you get this wonderful moment, right? My Yahweh and my Elohim. First guy. Brilliant, brilliant stuff, I think. So, where's Jesus in all of this? How does Thomas come to this conclusion? How does Paul get there? Well, no question but that Jesus is human. But then he starts doing some other pretty odd stuff. Like some guy gets put down through the roof and Jesus says to this guy, what? Your, your, thank you, your sins are forgiven. And some people sitting by in their hearts begin to say, what? Only God can do this. And Jesus reads their hearts, which is again something that only God can do. And then he says, what's it harder to do? Stand up and walk? Your sins are... And the point is they're both equally difficult if they're really going to work. And then he just does the God thing, right? right there in that little house. First century Galilee. Incredible. Now, I had a bit of a wrestle to decide what image to use for this next one. So here we go. But here he is commanding the sea. And some of you are thinking, ah, I'm not sure about that image. But what I'm trying to capture in this image is the fact that they're terrified of him afterwards. They're scared of the storm, but after this, they're more terrified of him. Why do that? Because there's only one who tells the sea what to do. That's Yahweh. Right? They know that. They're Jewish people. And then you get things like he claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, hang on. The Sabbath is Yahweh's. He corrects Torah. Listen to the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, and he's quoting Moses. But I say unto you. Now imagine Moses coming down the mountain. Well, you know, Israel, Yahweh told me this, but I say unto you. Like, really? That going to work? No. I think he redefines uh, the food laws and therefore pretty much does away with ritual purity. And then he does something equally extraordinary. He takes the Passover and says, you remember the Passover guys? Been celebrating that for what? You know, 1,200, 1,300 years. God gave it to you. It's inviolable. Well, you know, I'm going to change the menu. Oh, and it's about me. I mean, put yourself back in the first century and even try to conceive of a Jewish person even imagining doing that. Only way to explain this, I think, is Jesus actually did. Notice, too, that when the demons confront him, they're afraid that he will destroy them. Only God destroys demons. No prophet, no Messiah. That's only what God does. It's probably enough to be getting on with, it seems to me. Right? So with that kind of background, you've got Jesus as a human being and Jesus doing God stuff. But the thing that's really interesting for us in terms of the Trinity is where those two realities intersect. And that is, what do you see Jesus doing? He addresses God as Father and God speaks back to him as Son. And there you've got it. Two persons and one God. It starts with him. How do you make sense of that? Now, you might not want to make sense of it. You might accuse him of blasphemy. You might think he has a demon. Or if you're part of his family, find a more polite way of saying that. He's beside himself, but effectively the same thing. Right? But then you have to deal with his mighty deeds. And even Nicodemus realizes that no one could do what you do unless God is with you. And then, of course, there's that little thing that we began with, that little moment called the resurrection, which is kind of like you know the, the full house or whatever, right? the royal flush or something, and... You're all nice Christians, so you may not know what that means, but it does mean you're just totally one hands down, right? Okay. Uh, you understand in the Jewish world, resurrection means undeniably that God has confirmed 
his emphatic vindication of all that Jesus said and did. That's what the resurrection does. Right? It's pointed to the fact that everything Jesus has done, everything he said, God puts his name behind. So this thing we're wrestling with, God among us and a God in heaven and two persons, but the one God, well, begins with our Lord. Now, some of you who are listening are thinking, hang on, that's just two, so why don't we have a diunity or something, diunity? Why a trinity? Well, of course, Jesus is going to say some things about the spirit where the spirit becomes a person as well. Well, I want to say then, all of this tells us at the heart of the doctrine of the trinity stands Jesus himself. And if that's true, then to believe in Jesus requires belief in the Trinity. And I think that's why some theologians, such as Wolfhart Pannenberg, would say the doctrine of the Trinity informs all Christian theology. Of course it does, if what it's saying is Jesus is none other than Yahweh himself among us. Now, if this is indeed how God has chosen to reveal himself, then there is no question... But this is essential to Christian belief. Okay? So I'm not going to argue that one now. I think I have. So I'm just going to assume that and take the remaining 10 minutes or so just to try and unpack some of the issues around understanding. And this is the second half of those statements. Augustine, whoever tries to understand it, in danger of losing their mind, or for Milton, bones to philosophy. Now, one of the things that's really intriguing, as I've already alluded to, is the New Testament nowhere fusses about this. Now, we'll come back to this a bit later on. Why isn't it an issue for them? Well, for a later time. It does become a big issue if we speak in terms of history for these Hellenistic Christians to whom we've already referred. Now, they have a problem. And their problem is they themselves are not Jewish, but they're trying to tell a fundamentally Jewish story into a fundamentally Greek culture. And you can see there's going to be some real slippage there because in Israel they emphasize history and experience and in the Greek world they emphasize logic and rationality. And they're very nervous about experience. Now in order to do this, and this is some of the heavy lifting bit, uh, and no, this is not some kind of tongue-speaking stuff, but just to give you some language that people use in these debates, I'm not going to really unpack it at any length, but it's just to put it on the table before we dive into scripture more fully. In trying to explain this, they've got to use some language. So they use the word Trinity. They don't invent the idea. That's already there in the scriptures. They're just picking up a word to try and explain this. Then they use words like homoousios. And all that really means is the same stuff. And what they're trying to do there is say that Jesus is of the same stuff as God. Now, Jews don't tend to think like that. In the Greek world, everything was made of stuff. Even the gods and the soul was made of stuff, just really fine stuff, which is why it went up. All the gross stuff would go down. Right? So, you know, a little moment of illustration. If you've seen Greek painting from that period, men are often painted red or reddish. That's because they're made of fire and wind and they're designed to go up into the wonderful heavenly regions. And women are green and brown. You're earthy and your destiny is to go down. That's why men had all the power and women not much in the ancient world. That's the way they viewed things. Okay? So for them, everything's about stuff. Not really a Jewish view. But this is their way of trying to say, Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father, they're all the same stuff. They're not just different levels of you know, deity. One God. Okay? Then they talk about something called hypostasis. 
And what a hypostasis is, is an instance of some stuff. So these guys are all of the same God stuff, and they are three instances of that God stuff. So they're trying to hold the unity, and they're trying to express the diversity. So there's one God, there's not three, but you actually see them in three distinct persons. They're not just photocopies of one another. Or it's not God with three different masks. They're trying to hold those truths together. So, Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct as persons, and yet they are, in fact, the one God. Okay. So, one homoousius, three hypostasi. And then that's that, so you're probably pleased. Uh, the other term they use is uh, perichoresis, and there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on about this. Who's heard about the dance of the Trinity? Ever heard that kind of language? Great, yeah. Um, New Testament doesn't really go that way, so I would probably be hesitant about doing that myself, but there you go. Um, this is one way of talking about that even though you've got three, they're in, in this interesting unity. Right? There's some kind of reciprocal, interpenetrating existence. And then finally, the last two ideas. Sounds like Brexit here. Brexit's had a couple of references, economic. So um, They use the word economic to describe experiencing the way God carries out creation and salvation in history. So that's mostly what we get in the scriptures. We actually get to see God acting in our world. That's called the economic trinity. When you see Jesus in the gospels, you see him praying to the Father, that kind of thing. The imminent trinity kind of picks up on this Greek separation between this changing world and the eternal world. That's the way the Greeks like to think. And the imminent trinity has to do with that unchanging bit up the top there and how we understand that. Okay? Now, this is all well and good, but there are some tricky bits in all of this. First of all, those Greek words themselves have different meanings depending on their context. And that's one of the reasons you get these huge debates as they're kind of hammering out these creeds is to make sure they've got the right meaning for usius and the right meaning for all those other terms that they're dealing with. Actually critical for them, right? You've got to get that right. And can I say, I think as Philip alluded to last night, uh, we, we actually wrestle with the same thing. He mentioned the word father. A number of years ago, uh, I was with a friend in St Kilda in Melbourne, three o'clock in the morning, trying to talk to homeless kids about Jesus and who God was. I'll never forget it. The guy I was with said to this one young man, you know, God is like a father. And the kid's response was just violent. You wouldn't believe the language that came flying out of his mouth, the hatred and the vilification. He said, if anything like my effing old man, you can da-da-da-da. Right? You see, it's true God is like a father, but what do you mean by father? There's a history behind that word. You really have to be careful. We know what we mean, but how is it being heard by somebody else? That's partly what they're wrestling with in these Trinitarian debates. Second point here is, because the Greeks didn't trust history, what they relied on was rationality. And that's to do with rigid logic. I can't spend too much time talking about that, but for an example, uh, they believe the heavens are perfect, and because they're perfect, whatever moves in the heavens has to follow a perfect shape, namely a sphere. You've heard the music of the spheres planets moving in spherical orbits, that's all driven not by experience but by rationality. So what they actually, this amazing, amazing creative lift, um, sorry, leap on their part was they assumed that the world was rational and by that they meant what I thought about it actually happened to be true. 
and it sounds brilliant, except it's wrong. Every place where you can test that the world is not rational, the world is what it is. Those orbits are not spherical. Something else is going on, and you won't learn about that until you leave aside your rationality and let the world tell you what it actually is. It's really important to get this. People think the modern world is the result of reason. It is absolutely not. I know what world is the result of reason. That's called Hellenism. The modern world is a result of taking stuff on trust that the Bible tells us, like creation had a beginning and that every human is made equal. That comes out of these ideas. They didn't come about through rationality. So here's my point. If you don't understand the world that God made through logic, what makes you think we'll understand the God who made that world through logic? And I think that's one of the reasons the New Testament never tries to unpack this. They just don't believe that that's the way to get to the truth. Now, that's scary for some of us because our whole theological systems have been built on a worldview, to be blunt, that owes more to the Hellenists than it does to Israel. And we can talk about reasons why we're so devoted to that kind of thing. One of them, I think, is an idolatry of human reason. For some of us, that's our identity. We're clever thinkers, we're sharp. No, 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 no. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. Doesn't mean you don't think, but we don't buy into that worldview. I've got 60 seconds left. Now, if you think the world is rational, then you can speculate on the basis of that reason, right? This is the logic, that's what it's going to look like. And the Greeks love that, they love to speculate. But once again, every time they did it, they have a wonderful track record, they got it wrong. Because that's not the way the world actually is. So we want to be careful with some of these attempts to explain the Trinity that include leaping off into speculation. Then analogy. It's another way that Greeks love to get to know things. And you'll see this, you know, the, uh, Justin Martyr will talk about the Father and the Son being like light from the Son. Tertullian will speak of the Father like the spring, the Son is like a river, the Spirit like a canal. Hmm. Others draw analogies from our humanity. The Son and the Spirit were two hands of the Father. That's Athanasius. Augustine, well, you think of the Trinity like the human soul, by which he meant the human mind. The Father was like the mind's existence, the Son like its consciousness, and the Spirit like the mind's love for itself. Now, there's many others like this. And, you know, they're fine as far as they go. The fundamental problem is they actually don't go very far at all. And why not? Well, first of all, analogies only work if they're valid analogies. Who goes around comparing cats to jellyfish? There's some assumption underlying there that these two things are similar. But how can you tell that? Because the most serious and fundamental problem with all of these analogies, as everyone recognises, is that they're all drawn from the created material world. And God is not created and he is surely not material. So we might find them helpful, but you've really got to be careful of the fact that they're actually drawing on stuff that we simply have no experience of. I'm an engineer. I know about the material world, but I've never put the spirit into a tensile test machine. I've never tried its compressive strength. None of that, right? We are actually talking about things that we do not know. But let's be honest, that hasn't really stopped us in the past with a whole bunch of other things, so why should it stop us when it comes to talking about God? Well, apparently it doesn't. Okay, um, 
What I probably need to do now, because time's gone, is I should probably call this to a close. We'll finish this talk off tomorrow morning. There's just one or two more things to go. Is that all right? We need to be done. And uh, we won't have a longish introduction tomorrow, so we'll be okay. And it's my fault I talked too long. All right, so there you go. Um, that's part way through the introduction. We'll finish it off tomorrow, and we'll get into the Exodus and Yahweh. Is that okay?